Chapter 6, Gastroenterology. Topic 7, Hepatobiliary. Welcome to today's episode where we review hepatobiliary disorders. Our first topic is on differentiating viral hepatitis. Let's begin with hepatitis A and E. These are typically transmitted via the fecal-oral route, and travel to endemic areas like Africa, Latin America, and Asia increases the risk. Common signs and symptoms include abdominal pain, jaundice, malaise, fatigue, and fever. Diagnosis is primarily made through the detection of immunoglobulin M antibodies. The management of these conditions is supportive care. However, it's important to note that about 1-2% to of cases can progress to acute liver failure, and there is an increased mortality rate in pregnant women, especially with hepatitis E. Moving on to hepatitis B. This virus can be transmitted through unprotected intercourse, needle stick injuries, and vertical transmission from an infected mother to her baby, which can result in chronic infection in 90% of cases. The signs and symptoms are similar to other forms of hepatitis. For diagnosis, refer to specific serological markers, which we will discuss in more detail later. Management differs based on the stage of infection. In acute infection, supportive care is sufficient. However, in chronic infection, which is defined as positive serology, persisting for more than six months, antiviral therapies such as tenofovir, entecavir, adifovir, lamivudine, and interferon are recommended. A significant complication of hepatitis B is superinfection with hepatitis D, which increases its virulence. Associated conditions include serum sickness reaction with acute infections characterized by fever, joint pain, rash, and lymphadenopathy, as well as polyarteritis nodosa and membranous glomerulonephritis. Lastly, hepatitis C, primarily transmitted through IV drug abuse. The diagnosis is established through hepatitis C, immunoglobulin G, and PCR testing. Management strategies depend on the genotype, with genotype 1 being the most common. Treatment options include ledipasvir sofosbuvir, ribavirin, and interferon. Chronic infection with hepatitis C can lead to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. Additionally, this type of hepatitis is associated with several conditions, including porphyria cutanea tarda, lichen planus, cryoglobulinemia, and membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. Moving on, we'll discuss some of the intricacies of hepatitis B serology. Hepatitis B serology involves several markers, surface antigen, surface antibody, and core antibody. Each of these plays a crucial role in the diagnosis and understanding of the infection stage. First, let's discuss acute hepatitis B infection. In this phase, the surface antigen is positive, indicating active viral replication. The surface antibody is negative, as the body has not yet produced antibodies against the virus. The core antibody is positive with immunoglobulin M subtype, signifying a recent or ongoing infection. In the case of acute infection with resolution, we see a change in the serological profile. The surface antigen becomes negative as the virus is cleared. The surface antibody turns positive, indicating immunity, either from recovery or vaccination. The core antibody remains positive but shifts to the immunoglobulin G subtype, signifying a past infection. Chronic infection presents a different pattern. Here, the surface antigen remains positive, indicating persistent viral replication. The surface antibody can also be positive, and the core antibody is positive with the IgG subtype. This combination suggests a long-standing, ongoing infection. 
In individuals who have been vaccinated against hepatitis B, the serology shows a negative surface antigen, a positive surface antibody, reflecting immunity from the vaccine, and a negative core antibody, indicating no natural infection has occurred. Lastly, there's the window phase, a transitional period during hepatitis B infection. In this phase, the surface antigen turns negative before the surface antibody becomes positive. The core antibody is positive with the immunoglobulin M subtype. This phase can be challenging to diagnose due to the absence of surface antigen and surface antibody markers. Regarding treatment options for hepatitis B and C, there are several options. However, each of these have unique side effects to be aware of. Let's start with tenofovir, a commonly used antiviral medication in the treatment of chronic hepatitis B. Its major side effects include renal insufficiency and osteoporosis. Renal insufficiency with tenofovir can manifest as a decline in glomerular filtration rate or tubular dysfunction. Osteoporosis, on the other hand, is due to the impact of tenofovir on bone mineral density. Regular monitoring of renal function and bone density is recommended in patients on long-term tenofovir therapy. Moving on to adifovir, another antiviral used in hepatitis B treatment. Adifovir's significant side effect is hematuria. This symptom may indicate renal damage, and thus renal function should be closely monitored in patients on adifovir. Next, we have interferon, used in both hepatitis B and C treatments. Interferon can cause a range of side effects, including systemic symptoms like fever, malaise, arthralgias, and myalgias. Hematological side effects such as leukopenia and thrombocytopenia are also common and necessitate regular blood count monitoring. Additionally, interferon is well known for causing or exacerbating depression, so mental health monitoring is essential. Lastly, ribavirin, often used in combination with other drugs for hepatitis C treatment. Ribavirin's major side effect is hemolytic anemia, where red blood cells are destroyed faster than they are made. It also has teratogenic effects, meaning it can cause birth defects. So effective contraception is essential for both men and women during treatment and for a period after cessation of therapy. In this next section, we will explore other infectious viral hepatitis beyond the well-known hepatitis A, B, and C viruses. Our focus will be on Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, cytomegalovirus, CMV, and dengue fever, each presenting unique epidemiological, clinical, and diagnostic features. Let's start with Epstein-Barr virus, commonly associated with infectious mononucleosis. EBV primarily affects adolescents and young adults. The characteristic signs and symptoms include fever, malaise, jaundice, splenomegaly, and tonsillar exudates. Diagnostically, a positive heterophile antibody test is indicative of EBV infection. Management is primarily supportive, although steroids may be used if there is impending airway obstruction due to tonsillar enlargement. Key complications to be aware of are airway obstruction secondary to tonsillar enlargement and an increased risk of splenic rupture particularly with contact sports. Next, we have cytomegalovirus, which can present similarly to EBV. However, a distinguishing feature is that CMV is heterophile antibody negative. This differentiation is critical in clinical practice to ensure accurate diagnosis and management. Moving on to dengue fever, a mosquito-borne viral illness endemic to South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. The clinical presentation of dengue fever is quite distinct with symptoms including fever, headache, retroorbital pain, severe myalgias and arthralgias, often referred to as breakbone fever, a maculopapular rash, 
and potential hemorrhage from mucosal surfaces like epistaxis, hematochesia, melena, and hematuria. Laboratory findings supporting dengue fever diagnosis include leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, transaminitis, positive reverse transcriptase PCR, dengue immunoglobulin M, and a positive tourniquet test, which involves the presence of petechiae upon inflation of a blood pressure cuff. Management is primarily supportive care. We'll now shift our attention to differentiating non-infectious causes of hepatitis. Let's begin with drug-induced liver injury, a common cause of non-infectious hepatitis. Various medications can lead to hepatitis. These include alcohol and acid aminophen, which are well-known hepatotoxins, statins, methotrexate, oral contraceptive pills, anabolic steroids, certain antiarrhythmics like amiodarone, anticonvulsants such as valproic acid and carbamazepine, and various antibiotics including macrolides, amoxicillin clavulinate, and tuberculosis drugs like rifampin and isoniazid, as well as antifungals in the azole class. Recognition of drug-induced liver injury is crucial for preventing further damage and managing the underlying condition. Vascular causes of non-infectious hepatitis include shock liver and venous thrombosis. Shock liver, or ischemic hepatitis, arises from hypotension leading to liver ischemia, characterized by markedly elevated AST and ALT levels, often exceeding 1,000 units per liter. Venous thrombosis, such as portal or hepatic vein thrombosis, can occur due to various factors like paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, hypercoagulable states, malignant invasion, pregnancy, and myeloproliferative disorders like polycythemia vera. Malignancy is another important cause to consider. Liver metastasis is more common than primary liver cancer and typically originates from colon, pancreas, lung, or breast cancer, presenting as multiple irregular nodules on imaging. Primary liver malignancies, although less common, can lead to a solitary nodule and elevated alpha-fetoprotein, AFP, levels. Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is a diagnosis of exclusion, often seen in patients with metabolic syndrome. It's characterized by elevated triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, increased waist circumference, and elevated blood pressure. The mainstay of treatment is weight loss and avoiding hepatotoxic agents. Lastly, autoimmune hepatitis predominantly affects middle-aged women and may coexist with other autoimmune conditions like type Y diabetes and primary sclerosing cholangitis. It presents with a range of liver manifestations from mild asymptomatic transaminitis to acute liver failure and cirrhosis. Key antibodies include ANA, anti-smooth muscle, and anti-liver kidney microsomal type 1 and 2 antibodies. Treatment typically involves oral glucocorticoids and avoiding hepatotoxic agents. Now let's move on to discuss cirrhosis, a critical topic in hepatology. Cirrhosis is defined as the loss of synthetic and metabolic function of the liver secondary to chronic insult, resulting in fibrosis and destruction of the liver architecture. Let's delve into the causes of cirrhosis. Alcohol is the most common cause, but chronic hepatitis B and C also play significant roles. Other etiologies include autoimmune hepatitis, drug-induced liver injury, infectious hepatitis, metabolic disorders, congestive hepatopathy due to right heart failure, and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Cirrhosis presents with a variety of signs and symptoms. These include chronic abdominal pain or distension from fluid accumulation. Hyperestrinism manifests as spider angiomas, telangiectasia, 
gynecomastia, palmar erythema, and testicular atrophy. Portal hypertension, a significant complication, leads to the development of gastric and esophageal varices, hemorrhoids, and caput medusa. Asterixis, a flapping tremor of the hands, splenomegaly with thrombocytopenia due to splenic sequestration, and jaundice from hyperbilirubinemia are also common findings. Diagnostic evaluation of cirrhosis often includes a liver biopsy, which is the definitive diagnostic method showing destruction and loss of liver architecture associated with collagen deposition and fibrosis. Supporting laboratory findings indicative of cirrhosis include synthetic dysfunction, evidenced by elevated INR due to decreased production of vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors and hypoalbuminemia, metabolic dysfunction, hyperaminemia, hyperbilirubinemia, hyperestrinism, and signs of portal hypertension, esophageal varices, rectal hemorrhoids, caput medusa. Management of cirrhosis involves several key approaches. Firstly, treating the underlying cause is crucial. Avoidance of hepatotoxic agents to prevent further liver damage is also important. Management of complications such as varicial bleeding, ascites, and hepatic encephalopathy is a significant aspect of care. The definitive treatment for advanced cirrhosis is liver transplantation. In addition, it is important to discuss the numerous complications of cirrhosis, starting with portal hypertension and its sequelae. First, let's explore esophageal varicial hemorrhage, a life-threatening complication of portal hypertension. Elevated portal pressures lead to dilated submucosal esophageal veins, which are prone to rupture, presenting with massive hematemesis, melina, and altered mental status. Management involves aggressive fluid resuscitation and airway protection, which may include intubation. Prophylactic antibiotics, such as ceftriaxone, ciprofloxacin, or TMPSMX, are administered to prevent concurrent bacterial peritonitis. Intravenous octreotide is used to achieve splanchnic vasoconstriction and reduce portal pressures. Emergent endoscopy is crucial for stabilizing the patient, with options including sclerotherapy or varicial ligation. Less effective alternatives include balloon tamponade and transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, TIPS, although TIPS can potentially worsen hepatic encephalopathy. Preventive measures include non-selective beta blockers like propranolol and natalol to reduce portal pressures. Rectal hemorrhoids are another complication, presenting as bright red blood per rectum, often on the surface of the stool. Diagnosis involves visual inspection or anoscopy. Treatment options include SITS baths, topical nitroglycerin or nifedipine, and rubber band ligation. Ascites, the accumulation of fluid within the peritoneal space, is a direct consequence of elevated portal pressures and hypoalbuminemia. While ascites can be caused by other etiologies such as congestive heart failure, malignancy, tuberculosis, or nephrotic syndrome, in the context of cirrhosis, it is usually due to portal hypertension. Diagnostic evaluation involves a paracentesis to determine the etiology of ascites using the serum albumin and ascites gradient. A serum albumin and ascites gradient greater than 1.1 suggests portal hypertension, while a lower serum albumin and ascites gradient points towards other causes like infection or malignancy. Management is focused on reducing portal pressures and may include paracentesis for symptomatic relief and diuretics such as furosemide and spironolactone. Two additional significant complications of cirrhosis include spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, 
SBP, and hepatic encephalopathy. Let's start with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. SBP is an infection of the peritoneal cavity that often occurs in the presence of ascites. Common signs and symptoms include worsening abdominal pain or distension, unexplained leukocytosis, renal failure, and altered mental status. The diagnosis of SBP is confirmed by the presence of more than 250 polymorphonuclear leukocytes, PMNs, per millimeter cubed on paracentesis. The most common causative organisms are E. coli and Klebsiella. The Ostaphylococcus and Streptococcus can also be involved. Management typically involves administering a third-generation cephalosporin like cefotaxim or ceftriaxone or a fluoroquinolone like levofloxacin for patients allergic to cephalosporins. Prophylaxis with TMPSMX or fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin or norfloxacin is indicated for patients at high risk of recurrent SBP. Now let's discuss hepatic encephalopathy, a complex neuropsychiatric syndrome associated with cirrhosis. It presents with confusion, headache, altered mental status, sleep disturbances, mood changes, asterixis, myoclonus, hyperreflexia, and a distinctive musty breath odor known as feeder hepaticus. In severe cases, cerebral edema, seizures, and coma can occur. Diagnosis is clinical. Based on the presence of symptoms and precipitating factors such as gastrointestinal bleeding, infection, hypovolemia, alkalosis, hypokalemia, or the use of sedatives. While hyperaminemia is a key feature, the degree of hyperaminemia does not strongly correlate with the severity of hepatic encephalopathy. Management focuses on reducing systemic ammonia levels. Lactulose is used to acidify the gut lumen, converting ammonia to ammonium, which cannot be readily absorbed from the gut. It also reduces bacterial colonic load due to its cathartic effects, decreasing gastrointestinal transit time, and thereby reducing ammonia absorption. Rifaximin, an antibiotic, is used in combination with lactulose to reduce the number of ammonia-producing bacteria. The last two complications of cirrhosis, hepatorenal syndrome and hepatopulmonary syndrome, are two less common but serious complications of cirrhosis. Hepatorenal syndrome is characterized by oliguric renal failure in the setting of cirrhosis. It results from renal vasoconstriction and decreased perfusion, compounded by excess vasodilatory substances like nitric oxide. Triggers include decreased intravascular volume due to diarrhea, vomiting, sepsis, diuresis, hemorrhage, or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, as well as decreased GFR potentially caused by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or ACE inhibitors. Hepatorenal syndrome is classified into two types, type 1, which is rapidly progressive and often leads to death within weeks, and type 2, which is less aggressive but still fatal within 3-6 months. Diagnostic criteria include renal studies consistent with pre-renal azotemia, decreased GFR, low urine sodium, fractional excretion of sodium less than 1%, elevated BUN to create 9 ratio, but unresponsive to IV fluid resuscitation. Management of hepatorenal syndrome is supportive care until liver transplantation can be performed. Treatment options include octreotide, midodrine, and alpha agonist to increase blood pressure, low-dose dopamine to increase renal vasodilation, and possibly TIPS, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. Hepatopulmonary syndrome involves hypoxia due to liver failure and portal hypertension. The pathophysiology is thought to involve intrapulmonary vascular dilation as the cirrhotic liver is unable to metabolize vasodilators such as nitric oxide, 
leading to ventilation-perfusion mismatch and the potential development of intrapulmonary shunts. Key signs and symptoms include liver failure, orthodeoxia, which is hypoxia when sitting upright, and platypnea, which is dyspnea in the upright position, relieved when supine. Management is primarily supportive care, including oxygen supplementation, until a liver transplant can be performed. Transplant candidacy and classification is another important consideration in the discussion of liver failure. Understanding these aspects is crucial as they play a significant role in patient management and prognosis. Firstly, the severity of liver disease and cirrhosis can be classified using the Child Pew score. This scoring system is divided into classes A, B, and C, with increasing severity from A to C. The Child Pew score considers five clinical and laboratory measures, the presence and severity of ACITs, total bilirubin levels, the degree of encephalopathy, the INR, and serum albumin levels. This score helps in assessing the prognosis of chronic liver disease and is often used to determine the need for and timing of liver transplantation. Moving to liver transplant candidacy, this is evaluated using the model for end-stage liver disease, MELD score. The MELD score offers a more quantitative approach compared to the child pew score and includes creatinine, bilirubin, INR, and sodium levels. The MELD score is used to prioritize patients for liver transplantation with higher scores indicating more severe liver disease and a greater urgency for transplantation. Lastly, patients with cirrhosis should undergo periodic monitoring for the development of hepatocellular carcinoma. This monitoring typically involves serum alpha-fetoprotein levels, a tumor marker that can be elevated in HCC. Additionally, imaging studies like ultrasound, Connecticut, or MRI, may be used to detect the development of liver cancer in patients with cirrhosis. This monitoring typically involves serum alpha-fetoprotein levels, a tumor marker that can be elevated in HCC. Additionally, imaging studies like ultrasound, CT, or MRI may be used to detect the development of liver cancer in patients with cirrhosis. Moving on, we'll discuss liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC. Risk factors for HCC include any cause of cirrhosis, although hepatitis B is notable in that it can lead to HCC even without evidence of cirrhosis. Other risk factors include exposure to toxins like aflatoxin and vinyl chloride, hepatic adenomas, infectious agents like schistosomiasis, and metabolic disorders such as alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, Wilson's disease, and hemochromatosis. Signs and symptoms of HCC typically involve abdominal pain and weight loss. Worsening hepatomegaly in a patient with known cirrhosis should also raise suspicion for HCC. Perineoplastic syndromes associated with HCC include hypoglycemia and polycythemia. These syndromes occur due to the ectopic production of hormones or hormone-like substances by the tumor cells. The key marker for HCC is an elevated alpha-fetoprotein, AFP level. Imaging studies such as contrast-enhanced CT or MRI are crucial. These imaging modalities can reveal lesions larger than one centimeter with characteristic non-rim arterial phase hyperenhancement relative to the liver parenchyma with washout. Liver biopsy is generally reserved for cases with atypical imaging appearances. Management of HCC varies based on the extent of the disease. For localized disease, surgical resection is the preferred option, but many patients with HCC are high-risk surgical candidates due to underlying liver failure. 
Non-surgical alternatives include thermal ablation and embolization. In cases of extensive disease, chemotherapy is the mainstay of treatment. Agents such as sorafenib and regorafenib, which are tyrosine kinase and vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors, are commonly used. The final liver-related disorder we will discuss before moving to biliary disease is Wilson's disease, also known as hepatolenticular degeneration. Wilson's disease is an autosomal recessive disorder that typically presents in early adolescence or adulthood. The disease is characterized by a disorder of copper metabolism. This results from decreased levels of ceruloplasmin, a copper transporter, leading to elevated free copper levels. This excess copper is deposited in various organs, including the liver and basal ganglia, causing oxidative damage. The clinical presentation of Wilson's disease is diverse. Neuropsychiatric symptoms can include tremors, ataxia, dysarthria, delirium, hallucinations, and seizures. Gastrointestinal manifestations may include abdominal pain, hepatomegaly, and jaundice. Musculoskeletal issues like pseudogout and calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease can occur. Hematologically, patients may present with Coombs negative hemolytic anemia. Kidney involvement can lead to type 2, renal tubular acidosis, nephrolithiasis, and Fanconi syndrome. Ocular findings include Kayser-Fleischer rings, which are greenish-brown rings around the cornea representing copper deposition in the decimate membrane and cataracts. Diagnostic approaches for Wilson's disease include a slit lamp examination to detect Kayser-Fleischer rings, measurement of serum ceruloplasmin levels, which may be decreased, assessment of urinary copper excretion post-penicillamine administration, and liver biopsy showing increased hepatic copper content. The primary goal in managing Wilson's disease is to enhance copper excretion. This is achieved using copper chelators such as penicillamine and trientine. Zinc is also used as it interferes with the intestinal absorption of copper. If left untreated, Wilson's disease can lead to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. Moving on to our first biliary disorders, we'll discuss primary biliary cirrhosis, PBC, and primary sclerosing cholangitis, PSC, two significant liver diseases that often get confused due to their similar presentations but have distinct differences in epidemiology, clinical features, and management. PBC primarily affects middle-aged women and is often associated with other autoimmune diseases like Sjogren's syndrome and rheumatoid arthritis. Its hallmark symptoms include jaundice, pruritus, and malabsorption of fat-soluble vitamins often accompanied by xanthelasma or xanthomus due to hyperlipidemia. The diagnosis is typically made through elevated alkaline phosphatase levels and the presence of antimitochondrial antibodies. An MRCP in PBC patients shows dilated intrahepatic ducts. Treatment focuses on slowing disease progression and managing symptoms, primarily using ursodeoxycholic acid and cholesteramine for pruritus. Patients with PBC may also require calcium, vitamin D, and bisphosphonates to manage osteoporosis, a common complication, along with biliary cirrhosis. In contrast, PSC is more common in middle-aged men and is closely associated with inflammatory bowel disease. Patients with PSC also experience jaundice, pruritus, and abdominal pain, but this condition is serologically characterized by the presence of P. onca and elevated alkaline phosphatase, similar to PBC. However, MRCP reveals both intra- and extrahepatic duct dilation with a beads-on-a-string appearance. 
while the management of PSC also involves ursodeoxycholic acid and cholesteramine, endoscopic stenting of strictures plays a significant role, and liver transplantation may be necessary in advanced cases. The complication profile of PSC is more severe, including not only biliary cirrhosis, but also an increased risk of cholangiocarcinoma, gallbladder cancer, and colon cancer. It's noteworthy that ursodeoxycholic acid, while used in both conditions, has not shown the same efficacy in delaying disease progression in PSC as it has in PBC. Lastly, we'll discuss cancer of the biliary tree, also known as cholangiocarcinoma. Cholangiocarcinoma is a malignancy of the intra- or extrahepatic biliary ducts. Cholangiocarcinoma is most commonly associated with certain risk factors. These include primary sclerosing cholangitis, ulcerative colitis, clonorchis sinensis infection, which is a liver fluke typically acquired from eating undercooked fish and treatable with praziquantel, and colidocal cysts, which are malformations of the biliary duct. Clinically, patients with cholangiocarcinoma often present with abdominal pain and may have a palpable abdominal mass. Obstructive jaundice is a hallmark of this condition, characterized by light-colored stools, dark urine, and pruritus. Patients also commonly experience weight loss. For diagnosis, elevated CA199, a tumor marker, is commonly seen in cholangiocarcinoma. ERCP with biopsy and percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography are critical diagnostic procedures that help in identifying and characterizing the tumor. The management of cholangiocarcinoma is challenging, as the prognosis is generally poor, with less than a one-year survival rate post-diagnosis. This poor prognosis is primarily due to the fact that most tumors are unresectable at the time of diagnosis. Palliative stenting for biliary obstruction is often employed to alleviate symptoms and improve the quality of life.